0: You're listening to Rick Kleffel, The Agony Column Podcast. You can find additional reviews, interviews, print interviews, and book commentary five days a week at trashotroncom agony. Leslie Ellen Jones holds a PhD in folklore and mythology studies from UCLA and is the author of From Witch to Wicca. Welcome to the program, Leslie.
1: Thank you for having me.
0: Leslie, tell us a little bit about From Witch to Wicca. It's a history of witchcraft, but more a history of the perception of witchcraft, isn't it?
1: Yeah. um, The thing that got me interested in the subject was that we have this stereotype of the witch as being this ugly old crone, But then there's also this image of the witch, especially with the uh, increase in uh, neo-paganism, of the witch as a sort of countercultural figure, Um, especially, I think, there's the influence of feminism on this construction of the witch um, as being the victim rather than the victimizer that's arisen in really only about the last 30 years. Um, And if you look at... Traditional depictions of witches, actually, there are two different kinds of witches. There's the ugly old crone witch, but then there is the sort of young hot babe witch who uh, is dangerous because she's so sexy. Um, and this feeling among the people who are in charge of writing about these things that she's a threat because of her sexuality. Um, so you have this sort of hypersexualized witch on the one hand. And the sort of desexualized witch, on the other hand, is the old crone, is the woman who is past child-rearing age. Um, And so I became interested in how did the idea of what a witch is change over time? I mean, are there certain kinds of witches that are more popular at certain times than others? And I started going back. And, I mean, you can trace ideas about witchcraft all the way back to practically the beginning of writing. So it's... The idea that there are people out there who have some sort of supernatural power that they are able to use for their benefit and possibly to your detriment seems to be around, you know, practically as long as civilization, as far as we can tell. So I picked, you know, obviously with a time span like that, you can't cover every single idea about which in every single culture around the world. Um, So I concentrated really on the ones that are the roots of contemporary American and English civilization uh, and looked at specific points in time, how were witches depicted in, really in literature as opposed to in history. I wasn't really looking at things like, you know, witchcraft trials per se, but um, the way, you know, there are witches in classical literature. uh, There are witches in medieval Celtic literature Uh, You have witches in Shakespeare. Um, You have witches, you know, throughout the sort of the enlightenment into the present. And, And there are some, you know, sort of significant shifts back and forth in terms of, well, both the position of women, but also whether witches are even women at all. I mean, especially in earlier times, witches were as likely to be male as they were to be female. But it seems that the aspect that has really sort of had the longest hold in Western culture is the idea of the witch as someone who uses her, quote, irrational, unquote, feminine power against male rationality.
0: Seen as a threat to the state and a danger to men, especially single men, isn't she?
1: Well, one of the things that witches do— and this goes all the way back as far as you can find references to witches, is that they blight fertility. Now, they do this sometimes in terms of making your crops fail. They do this in terms of killing children. They do this in terms of making your cow run dry. But they also, and this seems to be the one that got people really nervous, um, they make men impotent. And so this seems to be one of the ways in which they're they're specifically threatening to men. Um, they sort of strike at their masculinity using their femininity. And I think that's in a way where you see, that's especially where the sort of hypersexualized younger witch figure is very threatening. But I think in a way also the the older witch figure, because she's somebody who would be Sort of immune to a, a man's personal charms, <laughs> or else sometimes she is overly interested in a man's personal charms, and there is this idea of this, you know, ugly old lady who's after the hot young man. Um, and so, it, to the extent that you can think of the state as being masculine, then the witch is feminine and a threat. The witch embodies what is threatening about women to the state. And uh, it it manifests itself in different ways.
0: Now, weren't these crones often seen to shift back and forth to become the Seductive, beautiful young witch. Aren't they sometimes seen as one and the same? Just a different point of view. Yeah.
1: Well, sometimes their witches are perceived as well. Witches are frequently perceived as being shapeshifters of various kinds. Um, There's lots and lots of stories about. You know, there will be like a dog or something that is harassing one's cattle and she's shot. The dog is shot. And then the person who's suspected of being a witch is discovered with wounds that indicate that she was the one who was shot. Um, So witches shapeshift between human and animal, but they also have the power to present themselves with appearance other than what they're their own really is. So usually when you have a witch who only appears to be a beautiful young woman, she's really an ugly old woman. The the beautiful young woman shape is the lie, and the ugly old woman is the truth.
0: (laughs) Tell us a little bit about the history of witches and myth from Medea to Morgan Le Fay.
1: In many ways, the myths reflect very much what's going on in the culture at the time. I mean, Medea is an interesting figure because she starts out being helpful to Jason and the Argonauts. She's the one on their side who helps them get the golden fleece and who's willing to sacrifice her brother in order to keep her, her father from catching them and so on. But then when she is insulted by Jason taking another woman as a wife, She becomes vicious and extremely dangerous to Greek society in general. Um, Morgan Le Fay is kind of interesting because she... It really depends. I mean, the, the con- in contemporary sort of fantasy literature, she's usually depicted as a fairly positive figure. And if you go back to really the earliest depictions of her, she's also a positive figure. It's kind of in the middle there where she becomes this, this dangerous figure. Um, but she's really interesting because in a lot of versions of the Arthurian legend, she's paired with Merlin. And so you have here, this is, I think, in sort of the late Middle Ages, you start to get this bifurcation into good masculine magic and bad feminine magic. Uh, Masculine magic tends to be more sort of pre-scientific. It's fiddling around with potions. It turns into alchemy. uh, It leads in sort of a circuitous way into science, whereas the more sort of you could say spiritual or sort of subconscious magic almost gets assigned purely to women. And so in looking at the way that Morgan and Merlin are depicted uh, in the various Arthurian stories over time, you can start to see how Morgan becomes increasingly vilified um, until she becomes a stereotypical nasty witch. Uh, but originally, she's she's a, an intellectual woman. She's uh, somebody who has a great deal of knowledge.
0: Tell me a little bit about the history of Wicca.
1: Wicca. This is this is where I open myself up to being shot by somebody. Um, there, there's a lot of different versions of the history of Wicca. Um, there is. Gardnerian witchcraft, per se, which you can trace really pretty strictly just back to Gerald Gardner himself, that he is somebody who took a lot of information that he found in various places in folklore, both in the folklore of the British Isles and in the folklore of the East, because he spent a great deal of time there before he retired. and sort of amalgamated them with ideas of uh, ritual magic that were very prevalent in the late 19th, early 20th century like the Order of the Golden Dawn and created something that he claimed was an ancient religion, but that really he had formulated into what it was that he was presenting to people.
0: He's the L. Ron Hubbard of witchcraft? Well,
1: I don't know if I would really say quite that much Because, you know, one of the things about all religions is that they always all claim to have been around since the beginning of time. Every religion does this. You know, even Christianity, to a certain extent, looks back to the Old Testament and says, well, you know, they were really just waiting for Christ to get here. Um, So, you know, the fact that he was claiming a very ancient lineage – for his religion, I think, is not anything unusual. It's just that it happened so recently that we have documentation of it. Um, But, you know, there's also, there are a lot of people these days who claim to be descended from what they call witches, you know, going back centuries. And the thing is that there were many people who were sort of traditional folk healers, that's usually the kind of person that they're tracing themselves back to. Um, And these people had folk wisdom, knowledge that was acquired sort of informally outside of the educational system and passed on orally from generation to generation. Um, And this is the kind of thing that during witch hysterias became identified with witchcraft Although the witchcraft that they were talking about during the, during the witch hunts was a system of essentially selling your soul to the devil in, or in return for power and didn't really have that much to do with folk healing. But you start to get all of these sort of different categories get all mixed up so that now people, rather than looking back and saying... I'm descended from, you know, essentially a folk doctor, say, I'm descended from a witch. So there's there's lots of different uh sort of paths that are coming together in not just in Wicca but in contemporary neo-paganism of all different stripes. I mean, Wicca some people would say is not even paganism uh because of its structure um and I think that that's that's something for people who actually are pagans and Wiccans to argue about amongst themselves. I'm not one.
0: (laughs) I'd like to get to the history of storytelling, some of the origins of folklore, the idea of campfire tales, and particularly the idea of horror tales as being very old. I think the first stories we told ourselves were stories to scare ourselves around campfires.
1: Well, this is one of the things that I find really interesting about storytelling. I mean, if you look at the words that we have uh, for narrative in English, in contemporary English, we have fiction and we have nonfiction. So real stories are actually described as being not fiction, Fiction is what has has primacy. And I mean, I am not a psychologist or a neurologist or anything like that. I'm merely going from what I know of folklore. But it seems to me that telling stories is, as some people have argued, what makes us human, our our ability to put things in narrative order. And another thing that makes us human is our ability to conceptualize things that aren't here at the moment. And it's one thing to, you know, you can start off telling stories about what happened when I went down to the river today. And that's narrating something that is not actually happening right at the moment. But then it starts to develop into you're narrating things that possibly never happened at all. And you start to become aware of everything that there is in the universe that you can't necessarily see. And I think that part of the idea of telling horror stories is to sort of to give horrors a name, because usually what happens in horror stories is that it ends with the situation resolved in some way. You know, the ghost is banished, the monster is slain. There are stories about human ability to conquer all of these unseen things and to return to sort of the order of everyday life. So... You know, it's it's very hard when you're when you're talking about folklore to say, you know, when did things start? You know, what were people doing when they were sitting around Neolithic campfires and all of that? I mean, that is all completely hypothesized. But I do think it's interesting that as soon as you have writing that is dealing with more than just how many barrels of grain are there in the storehouse People are starting, are writing stories about about gods, writing down stories about gods, about supernatural events, um, about all of the things that are conceivable but not touchable in a way. Um, and I would say that horror stories are really just sort of a, of a subsection of that, because one of the main things that myth deals with is, is death and what happens afterwards, um, and that's where you start getting sort of the terror of ghosts and that sort of thing.
0: Tell me a little bit about how storytelling has developed in modern times from its origins as one spoken word to another, to another being.
1: Well, I mean, the obvious thing is that there is so much more influence from other forms of storytelling. You really can't make a distinction between something that is a purely oral tale, um, something that is affected by the movies, by the written word, by the newspapers, by watching television. I mean, all of these different things start playing into each other. And also that. Increases the way that stories spread because you're not necessarily telling a story face to face to someone and seeing their reaction immediately. There's not that kind of performance feedback all the time. So, um, in a way, that allows people to, I think, in a way, almost address even more anxious uh, topics because. There's something different about, you know, sort of sitting by yourself and writing something down or just seeing how far you can go in terms of, say, special effects in a movie um, as opposed to what you can convey simply with your voice, you know, sitting next to somebody. Although there's also things that you can convey, you know, in the immediacy of, you know, sitting in a dark room with a bunch of people telling scary stories versus sitting in a movie theater or increasingly the way people are doing sitting in their living room with the lights on watching a DVD.
0: (laughs) I'd like to talk a little bit about the Greek myths as folklore. And when those were written down, tell me a little bit about the history of the myths and some of the monsters and, and the lessons that they taught us.
1: Well, you know, we tend to think now of Greek myths as, as having been written down, but if you go back to the actual texts, there are very few sort of compendia of myths until fairly late. Um, myths tended to be alluded to rather than narrated. Um, you have references to myths in, for instance, you know the Homeric hymns, where there'll be sort of a mention of, oh, you remember... Deity name when you did such and such a thing.
0: So myths are are, are more an oral.
1: I form? think I think that they're they're o- not so much oral as they're um, they're they're not related as complete narratives. They're bits of information that kind of get constellated around a certain deity, a certain place, a certain ritual. I mean, there are so many theories about where myth comes from, and one of them is that what myth does is explain why you're doing what you're doing in the ritual. Um, So there's this chicken-and-egg question of did the ritual come first or did the myth come first? (laughs) Um, But, you know, the Greek myths, the ones that, that deal with monsters of various types, actually, usually are very localized There's a particular monster in a specific place, and a hero of some sort comes and vanquishes that monster there. And in another place, there may be a very similar monster with a different name who the same hero comes and vanquishes, and the story is almost exactly the same pattern. So it's it's more of a question of like the same thing, thing happening in the same patterns in lots of different places. And then later people start to write things down in, in a more sort of organized fashion. I mean, I think that people sort of tend to think of Greek myths along the same line as the Bible, you know, as being, you know, like a compendia of, you know, stories having to do with the religion. And they're, they're much more diffuse than that. You know, you can go back to Mesopotamia and, you know, you have in Gilgamesh um, monsters being conquered by the hero. And uh, that sort of a story tends to be assembled at a specific point in time from a whole bunch of different stories that that are sort of floating around in the oral tradition Um, And then somebody, it reaches the point where it's either uh, necessary for the society for some reason to have this all written down in a nice tidy manner or for some reason, you know, this, this becomes a desirable thing. And then you get something like the Epic of Gilgamesh written down or, you know, the Iliad and the Odyssey. But they always all start as these kind of fragmentary stories that are often, you know, very similar, you know, similar things happening over and over and over again in lots of different places, or um, sometimes they get to be sort of like adventure stories about a particular hero who is, you know, going from place to place and having adventures like Odysseus. Even when you start looking at, you know, like the ancient, you know, Celtic mythology, again, there's... All of these, they seem to be these sort of oral fragments that are floating around and then somebody decides now's the time to write them all down and organize them. But that thing that's written down and organized is very much a literary construct as opposed to the storytelling aspect of it where it really does tend to be, look at that hill over there, let me tell you what happened at that place and then if you happen to be you know traveling another 50 miles down the road somebody may say oh look at that lake over there let me tell you what happened to that pla- at that place and it's a story about the same guy who was on the hill 50 miles back oral huh? oral tradition is very slippery
0: <laughs> it sounds like there are little units of meaning similes and metaphors floating around that you can grab and put together into a story when you need to. Oh, this is a...
1: Exactly, exactly. And this actually is what Claude Lévy-Strauss talked about as being the process of bricolage. He suggested that the way that myths are formed is like a guy pottering around in his workshop and just pulling, you know, whatever he happens to see on his workbench together to make whatever it is that he needs at the moment. And I think that's very much how, how myths become constructed.
0: Fear is an effective means of teaching a lesson, isn't it?
1: (laughs) Yes, very much so.
0: (laughs) Tell me a little bit about how fear is used to create a respect for rules and how it's used to talk about the dead and prepare us for that which we cannot possibly know.
1: Well, uh, there's just in terms of the way that fear is used as a teaching tool, there's a very distinct genre of folklore that folklorists call warning fictions and they're the kinds of stories that mothers and other older people tell children so that they won't do things that are dangerous And they tend to be scary stories so that the child will think, oh, my God, if I do this thing, you know, something dreadful will happen to me. Um, And those really reach kind of their apotheosis in, in, I guess, like sort of Victorian children's literature, which is just full of stories about some child who's, you know, told not to go beyond the garden path and goes beyond the garden path and is immediately, you know, struck down by a runaway train or something like that (laughs) or, you know terribly disemboweled by somebody who just happens to be walking by. Um, So those those are sort of, it's, it's fear, but it's also kind of threat. The thing about fear is that just sort of physiologically, in terms of the way that the brain works, fear and other emotions seem to be located in the amygdala. And memories are located in the hippocampus. But when something frightening happens, both of these parts of the brain are used almost simultaneously, and so the sort of emotional, really, energy of the fear that is aroused in your brain makes the memories much stronger and much more specific. So in that way, telling scary stories is kind of a good teaching tool because it does make, it makes the story and thus the moral of the story memorable, literally memorable.
0: I want to talk to you about one of the most famous ghost story telling sessions ever, which was the Shelley Byron Frankenstein session. Tell me a little bit about that. that.
1: You know, I find that a really, really interesting thing because... You know, you can get into the whole question of what exactly is a ghost and what is a ghost story. The story about the Shelleys and Byron uh, and the ghost story session was that they were all staying uh, on the shores of Lake Geneva in the summer of 1816. And in the evenings, since this was before television, they were all sitting around and reading allowed to each other stories from a German book of ghost stories. And so Byron came up with the wonderful idea that here there are a bunch of you know, literary types. They should come up with their own ghost stories. And so they each you know, sort of retired to their rooms and started trying to think of stories. And the first one to come up with a good story was uh, Byron's doctor, John Polidori, who wrote a story that turned into a novel that he published called The Vampire which is, I think it's, I'm not, I don't think it's the earliest, but it's one of the earliest vampire stories. Um, and his hero, uh, Lord Riven, was allegedly based on Byron himself, which says something about their relationship to each other. I usually think of my doctor as being the vampire taking the blood out of me rather than vice versa. Byron came up with a story that he ended up using a little bit of in one of his poems, and uh I forget exactly what it was that Shelley came up with, you know, just like sort of a little bit of a story, too. But uh, Mary Shelley was feeling very pressured to come up with a good story in the company of all of these writers, because she hadn't written or published anything literary at that point in her life. After several days of just really terrible writer's block, she had a dream in which they, they had... Earlier in the evening, been talking about uh, the possibility of using electricity and galvanism to animate inanimate flesh. Um, I think it was like a experiment with maggots. I mean, it wasn't anything really big scale, <laughs> but um, she had this dream of a scientist working over this, you know, inanimate corpse, and. Finally, giving up and going to sleep, and then waking up to find this thing that he had been working on sort of looming over him in the night. And it was, you know, one of those classic for her kind of like sit up in the middle of the night going, Oh my God, I just had a bad dream kind of things. And she started thinking about it and decided, Okay, that's sort of the nucleus for my story. And that eventually turned into the novel of Frankenstein. What I think is really interesting about this is that if you look at sort of contemporary horror, especially horror movies, you've got two basic genres. You've got the mad scientist genre and you've got the sort of supernatural vampire mummy type genre. And you can trace both of those genres back to that storytelling contest that they were holding, you know, on that. You can actually say right there, you know, 1816. But at the same time, You can't really, neither of those stories are ghost stories. (laughs) They were challenging each other to tell ghost stories, but they didn't have any ghosts in them. (laughs) I'd
0: like to talk a little bit about the setting, both the setting where stories are told to one another around this, this idea of a campfire uh, tales, and also the idea of, the setting where the stories themselves are set in these dark and lonely places, because it seems that there's well, there's a connection there. You're in a dark and lonely place, you're telling stories they are
1: well, you know, the thing is that the the things that you tell scary stories about are things that are not categorizable. I mean, like ghosts, somebody who's really dead is dead and gone. There's nothing left of them anymore. Someone who's alive is right here you can see them you can talk to them but ghosts are sort of not really alive not really dead they're some aspect of the living person that is continuing even though the person themselves is dead Um, you know again you know like vampires all of these kind of undead uh, beings Um, and so the stories tend to get told in places that are also sort of neither here nor there. I'm telling a story now that we are no longer Neolithic people sitting around a campfire, and that's where we live. Um, sitting around a campfire is, it's sort of a domestic space because you're around a fire, but you're not in a house. You're, you're in this sort of liminal space where you're neither here nor there. Um, stories like this also get told uh, a lot of times uh, during initiation rites um, for various you know, fraternities, sororities, or other kinds of, of organizations where the people themselves are neither here nor there. They're not a part of the group yet, but they're not not a part of the group yet. They're sort of in between. Um, And they're told about places that are also liminal. They're abandoned houses often, you know, houses that are supposed to be, by definition, lived in, but nobody's in there. Um, They take place in, um, you know, sort of boundaries. Uh, There's the very well-known story of the vanishing hitchhiker. Um, where a guy is at a dance and he meets this very nice looking girl and dances with her. And then she asks him for a ride home and tells him where to go. And he's driving along. And then suddenly when he gets to the place where she's told him to go, she's not in the car. And he goes in and tells the people in the house what, you know, what had happened. And they say, oh, my God, you know, that's that's our daughter who died a year ago. Um so where that takes place, again, you know, it starts in a place that's that's not home, but where people from all different kinds of homes are coming together for some sort of a social event, and the vanishing takes place between that space and the home where the girl used to live. So all of these things are happening in in transitional spaces, and... There's a phenomenon that's called legend tripping, where people, uh, usually teenagers, um, get together and you know they're telling each other scary stories, and then they decide these are usually the kinds of stories that are very localized. You know, it happened in that empty house, you know, down on State Street. Um, they get in a car and drive over to the place to you know see exactly what's going on and a lot of times they'll be daring each other you know I bet you won't go into the house you know I bet you won't go in and you know take something and bring it out or if it's sometimes they're you know sorts of things have, having to do with graveyards and there may be, you know, like some object on the grave and you're dared to go and take that thing and, you know, bring it back. So a lot of that is, again, there's, here you have teenagers. Again, they're sort of in a liminal space. They're not children. They're not adults. Um, and they're going to sort of test out the boundaries of reality in a lot of ways, you know, well, I've been told that if I go and do this, some monster is going to get me. So if you actually go and do it and a monster doesn't get you, then it's like, okay, so that means that monsters don't come and get you. (laughs) But, um, you know, if you go back to some of the earliest written ghost stories, which are from ancient Rome, they're stories about haunted houses in which there's some sort of apparition and everybody is absolutely terrified. And then some wise man comes and says, well, you know, I'm not going to let this get, you know, out of hand here. And he goes to the haunted house and he stays there until the ghost arrives. And usually the uh, ghost leads him to some place on the property And the hero notes where the place is, and then during the daytime goes back there and digs up. And it turns out that there is a body buried there of some murder victim who has not gotten proper burial. And the bones are given the proper burial, and everything is fine, and the ghost disappears. So again, there's this kind of, you know, the brave person is the one who's willing to challenge the unknown and overcome it and prevent these things from continuing.
0: I'd like to talk to you about the current appeal of hearing ghost stories told from the author. This stems from author readings, but author readings tend to be kind of dry. So tell me a little bit about how you transform that into, into the kind of an urban legend recitation.
1: Well, I think the thing is that telling for authors to tell ghost stories um, it is sort of a, a way to transition between the the written word and the, and the verbal oral performance because you have the chance to sort of work on it in private and figure out you know what's going to be a really good story what's you know what are the things that really scare you which hopefully will also scare other people. Um, but then you you get to perform it in a context where there is a lot of interaction where you can see the response where you can you know use you know your voice and and gestures and everything to to bring a, an added dimension to to the storytelling and i think one of the problems with most author readings is the authors tend to just sort of get up there and Here's the book, and I'm going to read you, you know, from page five to the middle of page 7 There um, They're usually, unless somebody is a really good storyteller, um, there isn't that kind of, of interaction with the audience. But there's something about telling ghost stories because... You know, people don't usually sit down and narrate to each other stories about, you know, the angst of a young single woman in, you know, 20th 20th century England trying to find a boyfriend. Um, But they are used to sitting around telling each other scary stories because most people do this when they're they're at least teenagers. Um, So it kind of brings you back to, you know, out of that purely literary frame of mind, back to where telling stories is just something between people who are, you know, sitting in the same space together.
0: And, and there's a connection, too, between humor and horror, and a, a bit of a connection between the stand-up comedian and the stand-up horror storyteller. So many people love to tell you that scary story pin you down at the water cooler and tell you that horrible thing that happened that often you don't want to hear about.
1: That's true. And also a lot of people, and I'm not sure if it has necessarily always been like this, but certainly in a very sort of scientific rational culture as our culture likes to think of itself, um, people like to tell scary stories that they suddenly undercut with some humorous twist at the end. So, so I think there's, there's definitely, you know, both are very sort of heightened forms of communication but to suddenly switch back and forth between the horror and the humor. I mean, you know, Buffy the Vampire Slayer is the perfect example of that, um, where it was just constantly switching back and forth between things that were very horrible and very provoking of anxiety, and, you know, suddenly something completely ridiculous happens. Um, And yet they both were valid emotionally. It wasn't like, you know, oh, God, you know, Why did that happen? You know, that's not, you know, spoil the story kind of thing. They're they're both, and you know, that takes really masterful storytelling.
0: (laughs) There's a real transformational aspect of this, transforming fact into fiction, the kind of stories of murdered children and murdered young women and men into a story that you can tell by transforming and adding that supernatural twist to it.
1: Yeah, um, well, you know, the thing is that, you know, in all practicality, when, when people die, they're dead. Um, there's, there's, <laughs> and and there are, you know, death, death is not pretty. Even, you know, the most calm, peaceful death is, is not pretty. Um, and so telling, in a way, I think telling supernatural aspects to the story um it sort of mediates the the finality of, of physical death. Um, you know, so much of it sort of flows into ideas about the soul and what uh. survives after death. Um, usually ghosts, for instance, are people who uh, either they didn't get the proper burial rights or they have some sort of unfinished business left in life that they have to have resolved before they can finally have peace. But what underlies that is the idea that there is a peace that they can attain and that most people actually do attain it without having to go through all of the messy business of being a ghost. Um, And that you you can do something for the dead even after they're gone. And that the rituals that you do to memorialize their death actually have meaning, not just for you, but for the person who has died.
0: It's a way of taking death out for a test drive, isn't it?
1: Yeah, to a certain extent. And also to sort of, no matter how scary a ghost story is, there's still this sort of underlying feeling that, well, maybe after I'm dead, there's still going to be some part of me that's still around. Um, that it, it it doesn't make it as it makes it less final.
0: If nothing else, the story of your death. Yeah. <laughs> We've been speaking with Leslie Ellen Jones. Her book is From Witch to Wicca. Thank you for talking with us, Leslie.
1: No, thank you.